Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. An especially warm welcome to First Move today. Great to have you with us for another Heat Is On edition of the program. Extreme weather warnings remain in effect for much of Europe as well as many parts of the United States, the UK declaring a national emergency as it suffers through what is already its hottest day on record. Heat advisories in effect across global financial markets too as investors navigate a perilous summer landscape. H stands for hindering hiring. Reports say Apple will take on fewer new workers and slow spending amid ongoing recession fears. Goldman Sachs announcing Monday that it will pair headcount to E. European energy angst. EU officials are operating under the assumption that the Nord Stream 1 gas pipeline from Russia will not return to service this week after days of, quote, maintenance. They're anticipating the worst, clearly. A is for aggressive inflation. Reuters are now saying that the European Central Bank is pondering a half point rate hike at Thursday's meeting to battle soaring prices. And T is for troubling tech. IBM reporting strong second quarter revenue growth, but shares set to fall sharply today on cash flow concerns. And stumbling streaming giant Netflix reports its numbers later today, too. Now, with market heat comes turbulence on Wall Street. U.S. stocks set to open higher after a disheartening session. Let's call it that. On Monday, the S&P finishing in the red after being up some 1% intraday after the bad Apple hiring news hit the tape. Europe also turning tired too after a mixed handover during the Asia session. The CEO of Goldman Sachs saying yesterday that inflation is now, quote, deeply entrenched in the global economy, raising the heat on central bankers amid an already sweltering summer. And that is where we begin. Historic heat waves. The UK seeing its hottest day ever. The mercury is topped 40 degrees Celsius in parts of the country for the first time. Temperatures could rise even further through today. The extreme heat is also fueling wildfires in Western Europe. In France, a third wildfire has now broken out. 37,000 people have been forced to flee the area. And in Spain, wildfires suspended train services across parts of the country. Passengers could see flames from both sides of this train, as you can see. Now in China, also sweltering as more than 50 cities across the country have issued the second highest warning today. And here in the United States, over 100 million people now under heat alerts. That's around a third of the U.S. population. Nada Bashir joins us now from London. Nada, we can take it across the U.K., but across the the European Union. But let's start in the U.K. We can hear the sirens behind you, and it is sirens, because officially now the hottest day on record. 
Yeah, absolutely. It really is a sweltering day. You can really feel it now, uh, provisionally by the Met, uh, the Met office, pegging the temperatures at 40 degrees Celsius. That's around uh, 102 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, that was recorded at London's Heathrow Airport. And we are still expecting the temperature to continue rising as the day goes on. So it really has been a, a pretty extreme, uh, extremely hot day here in London. We saw, of course, last night, the warmest night uh, on record. And of course, we are now seeing those records being broken. Now we are at King's Cross stations, typically one of the busiest stations in the capital today. Of course, uh, a lot quieter. They have, since yesterday, been urging people to only travel if absolutely necessary. And now King's Cross has been forced to cancel all of its trains for today due to the hot weather, which has had a serious impact uh, on its infrastructure and train uh, equipment on the overhead lines and, of course, the rails as well, which have been overheating. So there are concerns there, a lot of questions around what the country can do to better prepare itself for this kind of heat in the future. We have, of course, heard uh, from the government. They've been holding emergency COBRA meetings to discuss their contingency plans uh, for this heat wave, focusing, of course, uh, on the health and safety risks. Uh, they've been in touch and working closely with the National Health Service, with ambulance services to ensure that they have uh, the capacity to really uh, cope with the immense uh, heat that we are seeing and the expected surge in calls for help from the National Health Service. We are expecting, of course, according to the NHS, the surge in people suffering heat stroke and heat exhaustion. They have been issuing guidance telling people to stay indoors if possible, not to go out, although we are still seeing many people braving the heat, enjoying uh, the summer, as we've seen behind me. They are asking people to make sure they're drinking lots of fluids, to check in on the elderly and especially young children as well to make sure that they are coping well. But of course, we've heard from ministers saying that this is a lesson for the United Kingdom. We are only going to see these temperatures continuing to extreme to uh, increase and become more extreme and more frequently uh, see these extreme levels. So the UK really has to learn those lessons from this heatwave for the coming years. Julia? Yeah, it's such a huge challenge, isn't it? What changes do you make in an environment where you don't have a, a system and infrastructure built for these kind of temperatures? But really, let's be clear, it's only ever, at least for now, a few days a year. So it's that balance of, of where to invest and how to adapt based on a small proportion of the year, of course, to your point. We know it's going to, um, we believe it's going to increase on a, on a yearly basis. Um, now that the good news is for the UK, the hope is that it will break. There's thunderstorms due tomorrow. For other parts of Europe, the heat wave continues. Yeah, absolutely. We've seen those shocking images of wildfires spreading across parts of southern Europe and France, in Spain and Portugal. Uh, we are, they have been issued a, a red warning parts of Europe still today. That isn't expected to pass as soon thousands of hectares of land have been destroyed. That's according to the European Commission saying that in the, just the last 10 days in France and Portugal, these 40,000 hectares of land have been destroyed by these wildfires. As you mentioned earlier, thousands of people have been forced to be evacuated to flee their homes as a result uh, of these wildfires. So it really has had a disastrous impact in parts of Europe. And that red warning continues. We've seen countries like Belgium, for example, extending their red warnings to other parts of the country uh, as well as a result of these rising temperatures that we are seeing. We've heard previously from the European Commission, its researchers warning that we could continue to see increases in drought-like conditions uh, across the European continent, uh, perhaps 
issues as well with access to water. Now that is a huge concern. We've heard that, those warnings from the European Commission, from the United Nations as well. And of course, there is a lot of focus and emphasis now on what needs to be done uh, to tackle the crisis that we're seeing, to tackle these rising temperatures. And as I said earlier, we are going to continue, according uh, to researchers and climate scientists, we are going to continue to see these extreme temperatures over the coming years, and we're likely to see them more frequently too. So there clearly uh, needs to be a more long-term solution as opposed to these immediate solutions we're seeing uh, in parts of Europe. We've heard uh, from one UK minister who's been overseeing uh, Britain's response to this current heatwave, Kit Moore-Hass spoke yesterday. He said that these, this heatwave that we're seeing is going to give uh, the British government some pretty key lessons for how to cope uh, with this uh, heatwave, with this intense level of temperatures that we're seeing and lessons that will need to be learned urgently. Julia? Yes, many lessons. And Nada, great to have you with us. Loud, we have to take, you have to take the advice and to go and find some shade and, and get some water because what our viewers won't realise is to counter the sun, you'll be being blasted with super hot lights at the same time. So escape immediately, please. Thank you. Nada Bashir there. Okay, to China now. The scorching heat comes as COVID surges. The nation reported the biggest uptick in cases since May. The extreme heat making it even more difficult to implement zero COVID, as Selena Wang reports. In China, scorching temperatures and rising COVID cases, it's a double whammy for the economy and people's daily lives. This heat wave has been sweeping throughout China. Dozens of cities have been experiencing record high temperatures. Last week, more than 80 cities issued red alerts, which means temperatures were expected to reach more than 104 degrees Fahrenheit. Some cities recorded temperatures of more than 110 degrees. This week, there hasn't been much relief, with more than 50 cities issuing the second highest alert level. This unrelenting heat comes as China reports nearly 700 COVID cases on Tuesday, the highest number of daily new cases since late May. Many cities still require residents to line up for regular COVID tests. Over the weekend here in Beijing, I stood in line for my COVID test in 99 degree heat. Many people brought umbrellas with them. Some squatted on the ground, unable to bear the heat. There have been an increasing number of reports of COVID workers collapsing in the heat. They work outside for hours wearing head-to-toe hazmat suits. And the snap lockdowns continue in China. Over the weekend, thousands of tourists were trapped in a resort town in the city of Beihai. It's a popular tourist destination. The lockdown happened after a COVID flare-up was reported. Authorities ordered mass testing and banned residents from leaving their homes. This heat wave is also not helping an economy that's already struggling from the pandemic. The high temperatures are hitting China's crop production, threatening to push up inflation. Officials said the heat wave could impact the production of corn, soybean and wheat in many northern provinces. Pork prices in China have already increased significantly because of the rising cost of feed. This heat is proving to be dangerous for people's lives, but also to the economy. Selena Wang, CNN, Beijing. And Russian President Vladimir Putin is on a rare foreign trip, his first, in fact, outside the former Soviet Union since the Ukraine war began. He's meeting the Iranian and Turkish presidents in Tehran. Their main focus is on the future of Syria, but other topics will likely include Ukrainian grain exports, largely frozen due to Russia's naval blockade. CNN's Jamana Karachev is following the trip from Istanbul. Jamana, great to have you with us. Uh, the Iranian nuclear deal, grain exports, the future of Syria, where they all have forces but competing or conflicting interests, um, not the easiest of subjects to be discussing. What concrete outcomes can we hope for? 
Well, not the easiest of topics, Julia, indeed. And this is quite a complex relationship between those three countries. But as we have seen over the years, they have the ability to still uh, work together to deconflict in certain areas like Syria, for example, even though, you know, even when they are on different uh, sides of a conflict. Two key issues, as you mentioned there, the Ukrainian grain exports, this uh, grain corridor that Turkey has been working with Russia, Ukraine and the United Nations to try uh, and create, to try and unblock Ukrainian grain exports. That is going to be part of the bilateral meeting in the next couple of hours between President uh, Erdogan and Putin. But a lot of progress has already been made. As you know, Julia, last week you had the Ukrainian uh, and Russian delegations here in Istanbul meeting with the United Nations and Turkey. And we've heard very optimistic and hopeful messages from the UN Secretary General and from Turkish officials saying that uh, they have some sort of an initial agreement and we are expecting a second round of talks to take place uh, here in Istanbul uh, this week and potentially uh, the signing of an agreement for that uh, grain corridor through the Black See, and the other very complicated issue, of course, Julia, and this is top of the agenda for Turkey right now, that's the military offensive that Turkey wants to launch, a new military offensive into northern Syria for weeks now. We've been hearing President Erdogan threatening, saying that they are ready, their forces uh, are in position to carry out this new uh, military offensive to push back Syrian Kurdish fighters that Turkey considers uh, terrorists, a national security threat to this country from the border region. But they really can't do this without some sort of a green light from Russia and perhaps to a lesser extent from Iran as well. Those are the two uh, main uh, powers backing the Syrian regime and the main military forces there uh, in Syria. So this is something that is going to be part of that trilateral summit that will be taking place in Tehran today. I can tell you a lot of people in uh, this region, especially in Syria, are waiting and watching this closely. We know that the Syrian Kurdish authorities have already declared a state of emergency in that area in anticipation of a possible offensive. So we'll have to wait and see whether they're going to reach some sort of an agreement, perhaps to avoid military escalation, or if Turkey is going to get that green light, Julia. Mm, And we're watching closely too. Jamana, great to have you with us. Thank you. Okay, straight ahead here on First Move, political chaos and economic collapse. Sri Lanka's central bank governor on the biggest crisis in its history. That's up next. Welcome back to First Move. Sri Lanka's parliament has shortlisted three candidates to be the country's next president. Lawmakers are expected to reconvene Wednesday for a secret ballot to select their new leader. Sri Lanka's ruling party is backing Ranhil Vikramasinghe, who is serving as acting president after the previous leader was forced to resign. He's been prime minister of the country six times and his nomination could inflame a volatile situation there. In an exclusive interview with CNN, he accused the previous administration of, quote, covering up facts about the country's financial crisis. He spoke to Will Ripley on Monday shortly after imposing a nationwide state of emergency to quell the unrest. Simply more of the same from the previous administration. No, I'm not the same. People know that. I'm not this administration. I came in to handle the economy, like I did in 2001 when it collapsed. Do you think that the previous administration was telling the truth to the people of Sri Lanka? No. 
They were not. They were not all. They were lying to the people. They were covering up facts. What were they covering up? That we are bankrupt, that we need to go to the IMF. Thanks others. So what would you like to say to the people now, truthfully, as somebody who could very likely be their next president? To tell the people, I know what they are suffering. We have, we have gone back. We have to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. But we can do it. We don't need five years, ten years. By next year, let's start stabilizing. And by the end of, by, certainly by 2024, let's have a functioning economy, which will start growing. Uh, export-oriented economy, a dynamic economy. What went wrong that got Sri Lanka to this point of crisis? Everyone is playing politics, not talking on the truth. We, we interviewed a man who pushes his son in a wheelchair to dialysis six kilometers each way, five days a week. Public transportation costs went up by six times. What do you say to that, to that father? I, I, I can understand what they're going through, and this was going to be the worst period. The protest that is taking place, occupation of houses, burning of houses, that's only adding to it. Do you believe that other buildings could be occupied again by protesters? I will not allow any building to be occupied by protesters. How will you stop that from happening? I've asked the police and the army to guard it. And they've been authorized to take any, by any means necessary to prevent people from occupying? But just like the Congress, I've said protect it. You had your own home burned down. Yes. The furniture was mainly from my grandparents, my parents, great-grandparents. I had a piano 125 years old from my great-grandmother, all destroyed. A lot of people would have that experience and say, that's it, I'm out. I don't want to do this anymore. Mm -hmm. Why do you want to be president and put, make yourself potentially a target for this kind of thing? I don't want this happening in this country again. What happened to me, I don't want others to suffer. There has to be law and order in the country. What's clear is that Sri Lanka's next president must guide it through its worst financial and humanitarian crisis since independence. An acute fuel shortage has brought the economy grinding to a halt. Inflation is estimated to be running at over 50 percent year on year. Growth shrank by 1.6 percent in the first quarter and the central bank estimates the second quarter was far worse. Interest rates are at a two-decade high of over 14 percent. Meanwhile, spiralling food costs mean millions are going hungry. The United Nations says one-fifth of the population doesn't have enough to eat. I'm pleased to say joining us now is Nandala Virashinga. He's the governor of the Central Bank of Sri Lanka. Governor, fantastic to have you on the show. We thank you for your time. I know you're new to the job. You only took over as governor back in April. But I just want to get your view on, on what my viewers were listening to there. Do you agree with the acting president that the former government lied to the Sri Lankan people about how bad the financial and economic crisis in the country was? As the governor central bank, or any country as central bank governor, I don't think it's appropriate for me to commit on a political administration to use of current their comments. But I can say uh, one thing, that earlier administration of the central bank and the government had a different economic model that they were pursuing what they called homegrown model, that they basically were insisting that uh, Sri Lanka did not need uh, uh, support from the International Monetary Fund for a bailout, and Sri Lanka did not need to restructure external debt. That was a position the previous administration was taking. So now, since I took the office uh, with the uh, same administration, took a, 
different uh, position i we were able to convince uh, the that administration that we had to turn it around and we have good imf and seek bill of package we have restructured our external debt so since then uh, the administration has been taking uh, uh, a different path uh, then this this continues uh, even after there was a new government uh, formed uh, i think last month and there's another government to be formed from tomorrow so but still i think the successive governments uh, recently uh, in short term are basically pursuing uh, different directions compared to the uh, earlier direction that uh, uh, the they were not agreed to put the early administration was not agreed to restart the debt that is a difference from the last year to this year as far as i can see governor i want to ask you about the situation today because as you said we we need to focus on the future and where to go from here the hope is that a new government or at least a new leader will be elected and very quickly a new government can be in place um we also know that the the country's burned through cash reserves incredibly quickly how concerning is the situation today does the country have enough money beyond the end of july to make fuel purchases for example yeah uh, in fact uh, available uh, external resources in the central bank the liquid resource is almost uh, very low uh, almost non existent because whatever the available resources in the central bank we have uh, utilized uh, to import uh, support import of uh, some shipments of uh, petroleum products and some of the gas supplies so that uh, with that we have been able to secure supply of some shipments of petrol and diesel for next couple of weeks but beyond that it is in fact the responsibility of the new government to secure some short term green financing to uh, to be able to finance essential imports uh, in next three four five months until we we uh, we were able to uh, get the bailout package from the imf probably somewhere in december so this is a challenging time so from next month onwards we are basically uh, negotiating some of the bridging financing uh, uh, facilities from our friendly countries like india china so that we need uh, we need new administration uh, should start uh, the approaching those uh, friendly countries or some other sources to secure some short term financing so that we will be able to supply essential items for the people uh, to have their day to day operations smoothly you have currency swap arrangements in place with india and with china are they willing to help before an imf bailout program is in place or is that support contingent on other help yes certainly uh, so far india has been uh, helping a lot in terms of short term building financing they already provided 1 billion dollar uh, credit line to import some of the essential items from india and also they provided us with 500 million dollar petroleum facility that has already been utilized and also uh, there was the arrangement called asian credit union liabilities that out of which we were able to utilize almost 2 billion dollars during the last 6 to 7 months to provide support uh, to import some of the items so we uh, hope that uh, india will continue to support going forward 
that all depends on the new administration negotiations discussion with india so we hope that india will continue support going forward in a couple of months also we have uh, hoping that uh, we have all also made some requests from china to relax some of the conditions in one of the facilities that is china so if those facilities are coming if those two countries uh, will agree uh, to relax or continue to continue to provide support then obviously we can improve the situation uh, until uh, we go down help is coming. The question is how long it takes. Um, the acting president suggested that negotiations with the International Monetary Fund are nearing a conclusion. Is that your understanding too, or is your belief that this still could take several weeks to negotiate? Well, uh, uh, with the IMF negotiations, what they are trying to reach, what they call SAR-level agreement with the IMF SAR, which means the, the program, overall macroeconomic program we have uh, US and plan has been presented to the International Monetary Fund at technical level. So what, what we are trying to do is what we call software like you with the island, that is the first step. Uh, if there was a continuous uh, stable administration, we, in my view, we uh, could have reached agreement uh, within this month. But if there's a delay in forming the administration, or if there's not going to be a stable administration, then obviously uh, this they IMF need a commitment from the new administration of the policies that we have presented to the IMF at technical level. So that process, the, the time that to take to complete or reach a software like one will, will depend on new administration approach or agreement uh, with policies that we have already presented to the IMF. They agree quickly. And we can reach an agreement quickly, subtle agreement, but that is not, not the end. So that is one step. But beyond that, we need to reach an agreement with the, our creditors uh, on debt restructuring. Uh, so that process also will have to commence once we reach the subtle agreement. That will take uh, another couple of months until we reach an agreement with the uh, creditors. Uh, then, then only I can disperse. Governor, it all depends on those negotiations and, and your actions at the central bank also depend on, on how the next government behaves too. When you came to lead the central bank, you immediately raised interest rates to try and control inflation. Is this as high as interest rates need to go or might they have to go higher? So this is the highest interest rate we have had in Sri Lanka uh, uh, so far in the history. Uh, the whether we need to raise more uh, further in the future depends on what will be the outcome on inflation and inflation expectations. What we think right now, we have tightened enough for the time being, uh, looking at inflation expectations, inflation projections for the next 12 months. So if we think, uh, if inflation is going beyond what we think, so then we might try to tighten further. That we have to wait for, uh, need to look at data. And also from the point of a monetary policy, it doesn't matter what the administration, uh, under my, um, the, 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 uh, my leadership, central bank will be implementing monetary policy independently uh, uh, from outside. Uh, that is our key objective is to curtail inflation. But it is not enough. So here the 
balance prices, overall macro imbalances. We need a combination of monetary policy and also supporting fiscal policies, supporting structural reform of the state owned enterprises. Those will have come parallelly to have an impact on overall macroeconomic stabilization package. This is why I always say it is totally monetary policy that whatever we do will have uh, some impact, but without fiscal policy, without structural reforms, we won't be able to achieve the overall macroeconomic stability going forward. No, and the International Monetary Fund will demand it too in exchange for a programme. Um, Governor, I, I have about one minute left. At a time of um, deep political instability in your country and pain for the people, what can you say to, to Sri Lankans watching this interview to, to give them some comfort at this moment? I think, uh, in my view, we have a clear program, a clear path that if we follow this path, at least the raising reaching consensus with the creditors, I'm sure, I'm confident that we can come out of this crisis, say, for example, in about four, five months' time. But until then, we will have a difficult time. So we will have to explain to the public that we will have, we will go through this difficult process in economic crisis. If people are going to be patient, People have expectations of some recovery with the new administration taking strong measures. We have a light in, end of the tunnel. So that is what I'm confident. If we have to have a stable administration from tomorrow onwards, then we can make strong decisions by the administration. And we also support from our multiple side on Central Bank. Together we can come out of this crisis. But there will still there will be a difficult time. Uh, I hope people will be patient and hoping to see the better future but going through a difficult, uh, painful process in the next couple of months or uh, three, four months or five months until then. Governor, thank you for your time. And yes, uh, uh, a message of hope, light at the end of the tunnel, but several months more of, um, of pain. The Governor of the Central Bank of thank Sri Lanka, sir, thank you. Legal eagles for Twitter and Elon Musk today face off in a high-stakes court hearing in their bitter battle over Musk's abortive takeover bid. Twitter looking for a trial in the fast lane. Elon Musk lawyers saying, take it easy. Paul Monica joins us. Both sides, Paul, ready to take it to the limit. I do feel like we missed a Hotel California reference here, though, too. You can check out anytime you like. But you can never leave. To quote another Eagles song, I think uh, some Tesla investors might be wondering if uh, Elon Musk is like the protagonist of Desperado. Oh. Why don't you come to your senses and just uh, figure this out sooner rather than later? Because obviously (laughs) any distraction for Elon Musk is bad news potentially for Tesla, for SpaceX and all the other companies that he runs. I've lost count. So what are we expecting today? We are probably not going to get any major uh, drama, if you will. But part of it is because this hearing is going to take place on Zoom because the judge has COVID we, uh, or tested positive for COVID. We also know that Twitter wants this trial to happen sooner rather than later so they can possibly attempt to enforce the proposed acquisition closing date of the end of October, but Musk and his lawyers want to try and push this into 2023. So I think it's um, you know a battle of gamesmanship right now, whether or not Elon Musk is able to push this further out in order to maybe try and have a settlement, or if Twitter really can keep him under pressure to try and do this deal at that uh, 54.20 per share price. 
Yeah, and Twitter, of course, are saying that the battle over the bots is hanging over their share price and they don't want it hanging over them for, for months and months and months. They want to draw a line under this, I guess, either way. Um, speaking of uh, clouds, Apple announcing yesterday, or at least the headline was taken to be incredibly negative, but they're not eliminating jobs. They're reducing the rate of hiring. But for investors, it was seen as a significant warning sign from, hey, one of the biggest tech giants out there. Not just one of the biggest tech giants out there, but one of the biggest companies on the planet, of course, Julia. Yeah, I mean, the market really uh, shifted in tone yesterday. We had a nice little rally because of earnings, and then all of a sudden those gains went poof when those Apple reports came out. As of right now, it still seems to be just reports that Apple is going to be slowing the pace of hiring. But if they are doing that, it would be consistent with what we're seeing from other large companies, Goldman Sachs, which had really good earnings yesterday. They said during their conference call, the CFO, that they are slowing the pace of hiring, which makes sense given the market volatility. You've had uh, layoffs uh, reportedly at TikTok, one of the biggest you know, tech social media giants now on the planet. There were some reported layoffs at Oracle recently. So tech and financial services, two areas, um, you know, key parts of the market and economy, potentially looking to reduce the pace of hiring, if not outright cutting jobs because of all this market uncertainty and economic uh, turmoil right now with everyone talking about a recession possibly coming uh, maybe next year. Yes. And if you want to prune some staff and make some adjustments, now's the time to do it because you, uh, you have economic and arguably political cover to do so too. Paula Monica, thank you for that. Now, while some investors have their fangs bared, let's talk about Netflix, the world's largest streaming service, set to report perhaps the most consequential earnings in its 25-year history after the bell today. Rahel Solomon is covering this story for us. I think expectations now on these earnings are so muted, it will probably, and I say this very carefully, it will be tough for them not to, to beat these muted expectations. But when you've got Morgan Stanley talking about a streaming's recession, um, the warning is there, Rahel. What are we expecting from these guys today? The warning certainly is there. And Julia, to your point about this being the most consequential quarter and earnings report for the season for Netflix, I would also argue that the most consequential number in today's report is going to be subscribers. Remember last quarter, Netflix warned that we could see an eye-popping loss of 2 million subscribers. That came after it reported that it had lost 200,000 subscribers, and that really sent Netflix shares tumbling. Take a look at its year-to-date performance. You can see a part of the year was just sort of getting swept up in the larger tech trend, the larger tech sell-off. But take a look at April, the last time the company reported And it really tells the story. I mean, shares fell off a cliff after that warning about subscribers. So uh, what folks are going to be watching very closely is if Netflix did, in fact, lose more subscribers, how many? The company warned that we could see 2 million. So that will be the big question. But to your point, Julia, Netflix is still the streaming leader. And there's not all uh, pessimism or negativity on the street. Wedbush, for example, putting out this statement saying that we think that Netflix is actually positioned to exceed its guidance for Q2, particularly because of the staggered release date for Stranger Things 4, adding that, however, we think the sooner the company shows its commitment to reducing churn by releasing new content and other things, it will restore investor confidence in the Netflix business model. But yes, all eyes, Julia, on how many subscribers Netflix managed to lose this quarter if, in fact, it did. 
Yes, never mind subscription uh, recession. It's um, subscription saturation. It's just how many yeah. more of these things can you watch, particularly as people get back to life and try and do other things. Um, one of the first things that gets cut in an economic slowdown is advertising spending. Of course, this is something that Netflix has resisted all the way along. Now they've said, look, OK, we're going to allow for a cheaper subscription service that has adverts. And we should get more details on that today. Yeah, so it's a great point, Julia, because for years, Reed Hastings had sort of uh, bristled at the idea of an ad-supported model. And yet, uh, more recently, we learned that they are going to be partnering with Microsoft to add an, uh, an ad-supported tier, which analysts had been calling for, at least some analysts had been calling for for years. So the idea here from the company is that in doing so, hopefully it can churn some more uh, growth in terms of new subscribers, or at the very least, not lose some, some subscribers who are hoping to save a bit of money uh, by not paying the six a month fee. So uh, it remains to be seen if it'll actually be effective. There is quite a bit of skepticism, I should say, within the analyst community about whether it would actually add significant revenue. Yeah, or when it comes, given Microsoft's lack of experience in uh, this third-party ad tech business. So um, we shall see. Rahel, thank you for that. Yes, after the bell today on Netflix. Rahel Solomon there. Okay, coming up on First Move, how three friends built a billion-dollar car business but not content with uh, not content with unicorn status. They're now driving towards an eventual IPO. Caro, after the break. Welcome back to First Move. Let's face it, buying a used car can often rank alongside moving house or getting divorced when it comes to uncertainty and stress. Well, offering the antidote with an online-only experience is Caro, which calls itself Southeast Asia's largest car marketplace. Already riding high off the back of soaring second-hand values, this unicorn is gunning for growth thanks to funding from the likes of SoftBank. Not satisfied with that, the CEO says the billion-dollar mark is just the start. He wants it to become the Amazon of cars with eyes on an eventual U.S. IPO. Aaron Tan is the chief executive and he joins us now. That's no small ambition. Well, welcome to the show. We'll talk about it. Um, You're aiming to make car ownership easy, whether that's the purchase, the finance or the selling. Why is your platform the best for consumers in your view? Well, I I think to sum it up in the simplest way matter is effectively we give the best experience, right? You know, be if you're trying to sell the car in, in the shortest period of time, literally in minutes, uh, the car can comes into comes into the platform and off it goes money into your bank account, right? If it does, you have a selling. And for that matter, if you're buying a car, we make it super simple, super seamless for you to buy the car entirely online. And, you know, for that matter, we have been able to do this end-to-end from a customer's perspective, primarily because we play, um, you know, across lending, insurance, warranties, and after sales in the company. So, I mean, the long and short of this is just simply because we make the experience of buying and selling entirely online super seamless and simple for the end consumer. So let's say I'm buying and I want insurance. I want to check that the car is good. Um, I want to finance it. How quickly can I do that, hypothetically speaking, using your platform? Hypothetically, everything can be done in minutes. Like literally, we're talking about five to 10 minutes end to end, right? So you come in, you select the car that you want. And then, you know, for that matter, the, the loans gets instantly approved online based on your credit score. And after which you can you can then say that, okay you know what I need insurance I need comprehensive I need third party whatever and then you select your car and um, literally if the car is beside you or for that matter you know if you do, if you do not need next day delivery you can choose to pick up the car 
using the QR code uh, from one of our uh, uh, what we call ports, and you can just drive the car off the lot. Oh, we're going to come right. back. So to everything the can be done in five to ten minutes. Okay, yeah. we're going to come back to the financing because I've got huge questions on that. Sure. But first, where's the inventory coming from, and can uh, sellers list on rival platforms too? Because you're not the only one in the region. We've got Carsum, we've got Carousel that, that instantly spring to mind. Yeah. So the long and short of this is that we are different from a traditional classified by itself, right? So the cars actually belongs to us, right? The cars comes from various sorts of supplies, including uh. like you know Tesla, awful end consumers, and a whole bunch of other uh, you know. Um, uh, uh, platforms or, or other services, so to speak, right? But the cars are actually in our platform on our system. And one thing, you know, mind you, the, the, I think the biggest differentiation really at the end of the day is that we actually value add by making sure that the cars value and quality um, uh, goes up dramatically, right? Every single car itself needs to go through more than like 160 point check by itself. It, in fact, it goes through an entire refurbishment exercise, which brings the car to a certain level of what we call a certified pre-owned, like much in the United States. And this will allow our, the customer to feel, you know, even better about buying a car from us because buying a car on, on Caro is not just buying another used car. It is actually a certified pre-owned car. And for that matter, it's as good as new. Oh, and this is where the anxiety for consumers in particular comes in, is the uncertainty of buying a used car and potential problems. If you've already done all the checks ahead of listing it, then, then that's an important point. And obviously it speeds up the timetable as well of, of achieving this. Is the, the real money-making opportunity, though, to the point that you were making earlier, less about getting these cars in and selling them on, but the financing side, the insurance side of it, is that how you're making money? Because you make a big point about it's not just about selling cars, it's also as a business being profitable and that's something that separates you too from your competitors. Correct, yeah. You know, we, we think of life very simplistically, especially in today's current market. Everything right. is about the bottom line and if you can do double bottom line, that's even better. Right. And for us, I think you know, the, the biggest differentiation is that we have been EBITDA positively for the, for the last three years. But itself, as a tech company itself, it is almost unheard of. But, you know, how did we do that? How did we achieve it in such a short period of time? By the way, the company is only about five to six years old, and we have been EBITDA positive for three years. So that is that by, by itself rare. And I would say that the secret sauce for that matter is really simply because of the fact that we focus a lot of our time and attention on financial services, right? Be it lending, be it insurance. We are the only guys that has the license to land across all the various jurisdiction that we are we, we are present in, Indonesia, Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore. For that matter, we also own our own uh, insurance license in some of these markets. So, you know, net net, this focus on after sales and financial services has really allowed us to monetize uh, a lot better than any of the competitors or be it comparables around the region or, or, or globally. How? And how are you doing this? Um, you are writing insurance contracts and loan contracts, as you've just been saying, when uh, at a time Correct. during the pandemic in particular, when traditional finance providers are, are more reticent. And you said you used people's credit profile, but there's a lot of people that actually don't have an established credit profile. So are they just not able to use the platform? How do you price that kind of credit risk? How are you doing this and making money? Explain. Yeah, we do this. We do this entirely based on risk-based pricing. And that is a very good question, by the way. And, and I didn't put this on record. Our non-performing low rates, our NPL internally, where we call uh, in our industry, is, is basically like 0.1% per month, right? It's, it's, it's effectively non-existent. And we have been able to do this because we have been able to do risk-based pricing extremely well. And, and what this means effectively is that, of course, if you belong to a higher risk category and to your question, if the customer is what we call tin foul or, or for that matter, you know, unbankable or whatever not, it's not that we cannot lend them money. It's just that, you know, what's likely going to happen is that the risk of the, of the customer goes up. And as a result, the resulting interest rate goes up a little bit more. 
right? And how we have been able to make this work is very simple, right? We have been able to make a good spread of margins, i.e. the cost of borrowing, let's say, you know, one at two percent or whatever, and then, you know, lending it out at a corresponding interest rate that actually makes sense. And more importantly, being able to control the risk far better than even the banks themselves. In fact, our MPL rates are the lowest amongst the, the, the you know, the, 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 the comparables or for that matter in the industry by itself. And this has really allowed us to, to really drive ahead of competition or for that matter, driving ahead of a lot of the comparables in the region, be it in, you know, be it in FinTech or be it in the transactional marketplace services place. How many users on the platform so far and, and how big is this market? Potentially, Aaron, because this is a question oh. if you do try an IPO that you're going to have to answer very quickly. Yeah. That's a very simple question, right? Today, we are only at about 2% of the overall market itself in, in Southeast Asia, right? So we, we currently do at, you know, somewhere north of about $2 billion in terms of top line uh, uh, revenue and for that matter, uh, GMV, right? And if you look at it in a broader Southeast Asia context, it's about 40 to $50 billion annual annual market by itself. So we are only just at the tip of the iceberg itself. And we believe this is a, a very sizable opportunity because at the end of the day, you know, buying a vehicle itself, be it used or be it new, or for that matter, you know, buying an, an automotive, be it an EV or an ICE itself, is the second largest, most expensive ticket item that you ever purchase in your life. And for that matter, is, is the next one is probably properties. And we like to think that the, the used car space, or for that matter, the broader uh, vehicle space itself is effectively you know, a trillion dollar category by itself. And for that matter, again, in Southeast Asia, it's a growing business, it's a growing market. And today at only just 2% of the market penetration, we have a lot of room to grow. Oh, Aaron, you know, I have loads more questions. I've seen you make comments about talent and culture and investing and all sorts. So you're going to have to come back on soon, please. And we'll, we'll continue the conversation. But for now, you also win the award for the most facts and the quickest speaker I think that I've ever had on this show. And that, that says something. Um, Aaron, great to chat to you. Aaron Chan. CEO of Cairo there. We'll Thank you. Again soon. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, coming up after the break. What a mess. Climate change or just a bad omen? See what caused this big wet wedding. But the question is, did they leave their cake out in the rain? We'll tell you next. Stay with us. And welcome back to and then finally where Mother Nature crashed a wedding in spectacular style in Hawaii. We just take a look at this, sending tables underwater, guests scrambling for cover. Luckily, the cake and the dress survived, but several homes were damaged in the largest swell seen there in more than 25 years. The bride and groom told CNN's New Day, though, everyone came together. Honestly, it brought everybody together so fast because uh, our families and friends sprung right away and, and started picking up all the tables. Uh, the other thing that kind of went underwater was our dance floor and, and some of our uh, reception tables and all that. So they took all that to the other side. And fortunately, we were able to have a, a party and, and, uh, and, and still be able to dance. And we were dancing in the grass. And, and I think the yeah. one thing that we couldn't really salvage was our dance floor, but nobody seemed to mind. We had a really fun night. It didn't stop the party one bit. Um, it was just a really good union of everyone coming together to kind of make things work, even though, you know, this space slept through and washed away a good amount of our reception table. So it was, it was pretty beautiful to watch. An underwater dance floor. Luckily, though, as you could see, it was all smiles at the end. And we wish you all a both and long happy marriage and smooth sailing or surfing, whatever waves may come. That's it for the show. 
looking at the world. Becky Anderson is up next and I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.